Amen, amen. Thank you so much, Leah and Max. And I want to welcome you again uh, this morning uh, to those who are here in Night Hall and those that are watching online. Uh, We're grateful again for another day, uh, another time to gather together to encounter the Lord together in community. And really excited and honored to have back again uh, now for the second week in a row, second Wednesday, Pastor David Johnson. And uh, Dave pastored at the Church of the Open Door in uh, Maple Grove for 38 years up until his retirement two years, two years ago. And he has been uh, speaking, working on finishing a book, and has been uh, a regular, at least on an annual rhythm, voice here in chapel. And so um, he's going to be continuing us on in this series of the Beatitudes, a part of the larger theme of the kingdom of God as we're journeying through the Sermon on the Mount together. So um, would you uh, please, each of you, make the noise of at least five others and join me in giving another warm Northwestern welcome to Pastor Dave Johnson. And uh, would you please join me on extending a hand out over him as we pray uh, together as he speaks. Jesus, I love the way that the Sermon on the Mount begins by revealing that you said, seeing the crowds, you went up on the mountain, and when your disciples came to you, you sat down and you opened your mouth and began to teach. And I pray now that you would help us posture ourselves as ones who sit at your feet, that you would open wide our hearts and minds. God, would you enlarge in our capacity to receive from you in these next moments, Lord, through your son and through your servant and our dear brother, Pastor Dave. We pray that you would fill him with your spirit, that you give him breath and energy and strength to preach your word with clarity, grace, and truth. And Lord, that our hearts would be fertile soil for seeds to be planted today. God, that would perhaps produce fruit, kingdom fruit that would last and would have a multi-generational impact. So, Father, thank you. We are here before you. Thank you that we can trust you, and we do so now in the name of Jesus. And everyone said together, amen. 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 Thanks, Justin. Good to be back with you. I am delighted, actually, to be able to stick in or stay in something like this and kind of expand on it from week to week. The truth is, back in, I have been at Open Door for 38 years, six years into my time there, we're going through the book of Matthew and happened to come upon this text, the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in the Beatitudes, and um, it literally changed the DNA of our church. And um, it's part of why when I get to do it again, it's a particular uh, of interest to me because I'm always curious about the effect it will have. Because as I said last week, the Beatitudes for me, having grown up in church, were something I heard about often, but rarely heard it taught or explained in a way that became compelling. And so we want to dig into that a little bit. And what opened it up for me when I was originally teaching through it was when I read the Beatitudes or I understood them in the context within which they came. Last week I called it the divine starter gun of history, actually, when in Matthew 4, verse 12, John the Baptist had been taken into custody. And when he was, Jesus, as if on cue by John's um, arrest, withdrew into Galilee, thus marking the beginning of his ministry, because from that moment on, it says in verse 17, he began to proclaim and to say, the kingdom of heaven is within your reach. It's something you can experience right here and right now. It's not just heaven 
when you die. Indeed, after he gathered his disciples in Matthew 4, from verses 18 to 22, he began to go through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the accessibility of the kingdom of God and the good news of the kingdom. Uh, but he didn't just proclaim it, he demonstrated the power of it because he began to heal every kind of sickness and disease that was among the people, and the results of that were fairly predictable. Verse 24, news about him spread, and people began to come, uh, and, 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 and they brought to him all who were ill, various people with various uh, diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and he healed them all. The result of that was predictable. In verse 25, large crowds followed him, and my paraphrase is uh, from all over the place, from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea, even from beyond the Jordan. Everybody was coming to see what this thing was about, an overnight sensation, if you will, the hottest thing going, um, which makes what he does next, and Justin referred to it just a moment ago, really strange, actually. In Matthew 5, verse 1, it says, he, when he saw the multitude, he withdrew from them rather than pander to them or try to figure out how we can keep them. He withdrew from them, went up on the mountain, and when his disciples came to him, began to teach them, saying fundamentally this. And, and this is how I understand the Beatitudes, and it's kind of what opened up the, my understanding of them when I, I came to see that he's giving in the Beatitudes good news and bad news. The good news... I think Jesus is saying here is, is, first of all, this, that everything I talked about and everything you saw in Matthew chapter 4, the disciples, uh, was, is real. And the kingdom of God really is within your reach. It's something you can um, experience right here and right now. That's the good news. The bad news is that none of that kingdom life and power is going to come the way you think. It's not going to come to who you think or flow through who you think, because it's not going to be coming to the put together and the polish to the performer, to those who look good and know how, but ironically, this kingdom life and power that you saw in chapter four that was so exciting is actually going to come to and flow through people who don't know how and don't look good, people, men and women who know they can't save themselves, they can't fix themselves, they can't break the chains of bondage themselves, which makes people like that open to and hungry for God and the power of the kingdom of God and the wonder of his grace. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the broken is where Jesus began. We talked about that last week because broken people Two key words are, I can't save myself, fix myself. And so they come up hungry for the kingdom today. Second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. Which, much like poverty of spirit that I talked about last week, this thing sounds a little strange as well. Indeed, it doesn't make sense in some ways. It sounds a little bit like blessed are the bummed or happy are the sad. I was thought that happy are the happy. And, and, um... While some people in the church that I grew up in as a kid uh, seem to use a verse like this, blessed are those who mourn, as a pretext for a grumpy and miserable kind of life, it actually stands in contrast. This mourning thing does, and seems to even be in contradiction to a number of scriptures, most notably Galatians 
5, where the Apostle Paul indicates, indicates quite clearly that the fruit of the Spirit is, among other things, joy. Not mourning, but joy. Romping, stomping, running around in circles, joy. The writer of the Proverbs then adds to the confusion when in Proverbs 17, verse 22, he says that they have a merry heart, a happy heart is good, like a medicine. So it's a healing thing. So where's this blessed are those who mourn thing? Here's the question. If what Jesus says here is true, that the blessed ones are those who mourn, um, that the power and the joy and the reality of kingdom, of the kingdom of God, comes to and flows through people who mourn, the question is, if it is true, in what way is it true? Well, we get the answer to that by um, defining the word itself. Uh, sometimes the Greek helps, sometimes it doesn't. This time, understanding what the Greek word for mourning is is very helpful. It's actually the word penthos. On the surface, it, it simply means uh, to grieve, to sorrow, to mourn. Not much help in that. What helped me and opened it up for me was realizing, as I studied, that there were actually nine Greek verbs for the concept of mourning. I grew up in church. I've told you that. My dad's a pastor. So I remember the first time my dad in preaching told us there were three Greek words for love. Remember that? Agape. And they all mean love, but they're all a different shade. Uh, it's a different kind of love. And it took a while, maybe seminary, that, that I came to realize there's, there's three Greek words for everything. So it's not a big deal. Nine Greek words concept for the concept of mourning. The one the Spirit of God chose, Jesus chose to use was penthos. So dig a little deeper. What it actually speaks to is a kind of mourning that, that is not just sad on the inside, but penthos is when what is on the inside relative to sadness, mourning, grief is being expressed on the outside. In other words, just because you're feeling sad, discouraged, sorrowful, grieving, remorseful, it doesn't mean you've entered into penthos. Because it's not like, it's, it's not until you externally express your sadness, um, discouragement, sorrow, grief, that you've entered into the essence of this particular word, penthos. We began to say it this way at Open Door for years. Um, Blessed are those who begin to get out here what's actually going on in here, because until you get out here, What's going on in here, uh, you haven't entered in, you haven't experienced penthos, this kind of mourning. Um, it doesn't take much thought. I think you all know, and we'd all agree, that it's entirely possible uh, to be really sad. Right now, in this room, some of you are really sad, and it's possible to be really sad, to be really afraid, discouraged, lonely, hurt, angry failing, stumbling badly into sin and look great at the very same time. With a smile on your face, appear competent and composed, but you're desperately sad and afraid and confused. You might feel as if you're, well, I'm the morning one. No, you haven't done the penthos. You're not into this word penthos yet until you externally express what's going on in here So here's the bad news about this particular beatitude. People with issues on the inside that never come to the outside never get to comfort. They never get an experience of the kingdom. Uh, they never experience the healing power of the kingdom of God. Indeed, what they do is they get to keep 
the sadness or the grief or the struggle or the anger or the lust that they are incapable of getting out here. They get to keep it if they don't get it out here. The good news, however, is that people who start doing that scary thing of telling the truth about how they feel, even if what they feel is not a positive thing, um, it might look pretty messy on the front end of that expression. Uh, not very victorious when you start talking out loud about the doubts you have about God or your significant discouragement with your faith. Um, but they are the ones, the ones who start getting out here what's really going on inside, who according to Jesus begin to experience comfort. In fact, they're the only ones. It's in the emphatic, in the Greek, um, let me unpack it a little bit more. See, emotionally or psychologically, what I'm talking about here is very, very, very obvious. Um, people sometimes say something like this, I just had a really good cry and now I feel better. Um, okay, that's, that's, that's true. And what it is is that whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, the ability to get out here, what's going on in here, um, is essential to emotional and psychological Help. It's like a pressure gal, uh, valve, a gift from God that if not allowed to function can poison you. I think you know this. Um, what's odd about this beatitude is that, however, is that while many people uh, struggle with this kind of stuff, uh, of getting out here what's in here, Christians, at least the Christians I grew up around, maybe it's changed, uh, but Christians struggle even more often with getting out here, the authentic thing that's going on in here. Christians who somewhere along the line got the message that good Christians don't struggle, that good Christians don't fail or get hurt or uh, get confused or depressed. And if they do get discouraged, if they fail, if they stumble or are discouraged, um, they pretend like they're not. <laughs> don't tell anybody. Uh, so instead of mourning whatever's going on in here, disclosing it, confessing it, repenting of it, we hide it and deny it, slap on a happy face and call it the abundant life. Larry Crabb used to call it victory through denial, creating frighteningly unhealthy people, even in the church. Um, one of my favorite scriptures relative to this is in Galatians 6, verse 12, where Paul um, describes people like this as being those who are who have spent all the energy of their lives uh, creating a or, or making a fair show in the flesh. They make a fair show in the flesh, which means they've, they've created and invested their life in an image. And for people like this, it doesn't really matter if they are good or are loving, they just need to look good and look like they're loving. It doesn't really matter if they're patient, they just need to look like they're patient and loving and happy and full. And if you look that way, even if you aren't full of life, you're making a good show in the flesh. And there's a creed, I think, that comes with this. I discovered this as a kid. I grew up in a church very much like this. Um, and the creed is this. Um, how things look is what matters most here. 
And here's the deal about that creed. If it's the creed of your family, and by the way, this is an unspoken creed. If it is the creed of your family or your church or your school or your circle of friends, the truth is this, that if how things look is what matters in your family, church, school, whatever, then how things actually are will never get dealt with. Will never get talked about. So let's say you're struggling with some sort of sin. I mean, I, I talk to married people all the time. Let's say you're going to a church and you're struggling with your marriage. Um, lots of people do, but you're in a church or in a circle of friends where how things look is what matters. Well, if you're in a church where how things look is what matters, it's going to be way more important that you look like you have, not hit the pulpit, that you look like you have a good marriage than you actually have a good marriage. See, if you cared more about having a good marriage than looking like you had a good marriage, in a church, you might raise your hand and go, uh, we need some help. Things are going on in our family that are not good or healthy, and we am not wanting to blow it up. I really want it to come to life. But if you're in a system where how things look is what matters, that just will never happen if you're discouraged. Or let's say, let's say it's a spiritual problem, and you're really wondering if the whole thing is real. This whole thing about God, I'm not even sure it's real. But if you're in a system where how things look is what matters, there's... Uh, it'll be way more important than to look like you're full of faith than you actually have any faith at all. And on and on it goes. It's a sin problem. You're struggling with lust or anger. It's out of control, um, behind the scenes in some way. But you're in a system where how things look is what matters. How things are will not get dealt with, and it'll just be way more important that you look like you don't struggle with lust than you actually get free from struggling with because if you really wanted to get free, you'd say it out loud. Invite the Spirit of God to start healing this thing. Blessed are those who start getting out here what's going on in here. Another way to say it is, blessed are those who quit pretending that everything's okay when everything's not okay. Blows me away. There's a first thing out of Jesus' mouth about how people gain access to life in the kingdom of God. Quit pretending. Come to God the way you are, not the way you ought to be, and not the way you wish you were. Blessed are those who mourn. Her name was Alice. She was my mother's younger sister, which makes her my aunt. So she was Aunt Alice, and Aunt or Aunt Alice was a good Christian woman. She was also a very angry woman. But anger wasn't okay in the Christian environment within which she lived because anger is sin. And Paul said, put all of that stuff away. So my Aunt Alice did. She put away her anger as best as she could. So she never, ever looked angry. Indeed, she smiled a lot. It's one of the things I remember about Aunt Alice. Even when she was angry, <laughs> and said really mean things, she would say them <laughs> with a smile on her face. <laughs> Craziest thing. Because she wasn't really angry, um, and she wasn't really mean. She was just teasing when she said that mean thing with a smile on her face. Can't you take a joke? I never heard Aunt Alice swear, ever. Or say uh, like what we, we would call a dirty word in part because I'm sure because the Bible says in Colossians 3 verse 8, put aside all filthy language from your lips. So she did. 
But in the end, Adalus became the embodiment of what the psalmist was talking about in Psalm 55, 21, when he describes people whose speech is smoother than butter, but, heart is, but their heart is at war. Their words are softer than oil, yet sharper than swords. And as a 10-year-old kid, that's kind of confusing, because sometimes she'd say these nice things to me as a 10-year-old that felt bad. Like, and this is true, <laughs> I forget this. She, she would look at me and she'd go, oh, David, just look at you. Um, you are so cute. You remind me so much of your Uncle Don. Isn't that nice? He's a criminal. Uncle Don was a criminal. <laughs> I get a bigger laugh if there was more people in the room. He wasn't really a criminal, but he was definitely the black sheep of the family. He wasn't invited to the family, you know, gatherings. I didn't know why I was 10 years old, but she wasn't complimenting me when she said that with a smile on her face. It's very confusing. I didn't like Aunt Alice. But then one day I heard the story of Aunt Alice uh, at, of all places, her funeral. Uh, after the funeral, the family stays, we eat, and people just start to talk. And I, as a 10-year-old kid, maybe he's a little older by then. I was older by then. I start to hear this story, but this time they didn't talk about her anger. They talked about her pain. So on that day, I heard the story of an 18-year-old girl who went off to college. She was an extremely conservative college, uh, even for that day, back in the, what it would have been the 40s. Um, uh, Bob Jones, some of you have heard of that school. It was even more like, don't touch anybody and don't look bad at all, ever, uh, back then. Known for very stringent rules uh, designed to uphold a high moral standard. So they um, carefully monitored the length of men's hair, the length of women's skirts. You couldn't hold hands. So everybody's safe. But when she got pregnant anyway, and went, uh, and then they sent her home, in obvious disgrace, the family to whom she was sent home, ended up being my grandma and grandpa, told nobody that she had come home. Because not only can you not be angry in this particular religious system where how things look is what matters, you really can't be pregnant either. <laughs> so she spent the nine, next nine months living in the upper bedroom in an attic in my grandparents' home, never leaving she left that room, but she never left the home. And when she gave birth to that baby in a Catholic hospital, and the reason it was a Catholic hospital is because they were convinced no one there would know them, the baby was handed over to one of the sisters, and Alice never saw her daughter again. But this lady named Alice smiled a lot, and she rarely looked angry or sad, but she was really angry and sad and sometimes really mean. So here's my question relative to Alice and the Alices of the world. What if she had been allowed to mourn or just invited to mourn? What if she even heard somewhere that that was actually a, a, a critical <laughs> uh, piece of entering life in the kingdom of God. And then, after hearing the invitation to get out here, what's really going on in here, and don't do it passive-aggressive anymore, Alice, because that hurts 10-year-old kids. Um, what if she then had to act the courage to actually do it? What, what, what do you think it would sound like if all of that pain and all of that anger began 
to come out, how would it feel? Would you want to shut her up? Oh, that's a little much. Um, I sometimes think it would sound like a howl of pain. You wouldn't even hear words, I think, if it all came pouring out at once. Every once in a while I get asked a question about my life and my ministry and, and one that comes up from time to time is it has to do with my call into ministry. And what's weird is whenever I think about that, like what is it that catapulted me into ministry, I think of this story that involved me and my dad. Um, I was a sophomore in high school. We were very much this family where how things looked is what mattered. Um, and so you couldn't talk about how things really were. And I had two older sisters, and the oldest one, maybe seven years older than me, had left the house and was acting out in ways that were really public and very embarrassing to my parents. So I'm sitting in, in, at home, a sophomore in high school, going, oh, man, she's messing it up for us because mom and dad are going to tighten it down even tighter, make it look better. Uh, but something began to shift in my mom and dad. I can't go into all the details of that. It would just take too long, but eventually my dad, in the middle of this tension, um, not looking very good and couldn't be hidden, um, he called me into his office. He had one at home and he wanted to know how I was doing. How are you doing with all this tension and, and, and we're spending a lot of time on Kathy and not on you. How are you doing with all of that? How are you feeling? And the deal is, is that when you're in a system where how things look is what matters, you never say the real thing. You say the right thing. You know what the right thing is and how you're doing. It's, I'm doing great. I'm trusting Jesus. <laughs> Whatever. Means nothing. Um, but for some reason, and I think it had to do with uh, things I can't even remember, but the temperature in our house was changing, and I took a chance, and instead of the right thing, I started to say a real thing. I said one, and then, and then two, and then another, and, then, uh, and the only way I remember that experience with my dad was that I began to vomit on my father, uh, a lot of 16-year-old rage. I wasn't even directed at him, it was just in me, and blah, came out on him. When I was done, um, my heart is beating, and I'm going, I am in so much tr trouble. I think I swore in there somewhere. But what was weird was this time he didn't fix it, he didn't correct it, he didn't stop it. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was weeping when I was done. And it took a while for me to process that, but eventually it changed my life, and here's why, because I realized there that if my dad can handle the real me, even when it's messy like that, not the polished president of the youth group me, but the real me, if my dad can handle that guy, maybe God can too. I got saved that day. And quit pretending. It's God. I wasn't afraid anymore of being, bringing it out into the light, whatever it is. First John 1 John 1.5 says this, God is light. And we all interpret that often to mean truth. He's the ultimate reality. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There is no shifting shadow, no darkness. No, there is no baloney at all. And baloney is not the original Greek. Work on that one. Uh, so he's the ultimate reality. Now, if we say we have fellowship with this God who is the ultimate reality, 
And, but we walk in darkness. I used to think darkness meant you walk in sin. That's not what he's talking about. If you say you have fellowship with the God who is the ultimate light, um, and you're walking in darkness, meaning you're hiding your sin, uh, that you, then you lie about having fellowship with the God who is light because you cannot be in the light and in the dark at the same time. So blessed are those who get out here what's going on in here, who bring to the light what's really going on in here out here because that's where the light can shine and the healing can come and the kingdom of God is released. Psalm 32 is a text that kind of powerfully illustrates this and just kind of confirms again, wow, 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 this thing that Jesus is talking about is all over the place in the scripture. Psalm 42, David says this. At the end of his deal with Bathsheba and Uriah, he repents and then he reflecting says, when I kept silent about my sin and I hid that whole thing, my body literally wasted away, my vitality wasted away as with the fever heat of summer literally had a, a physical effect on him when he held it all in and just kept pretending. But when I acknowledged my sin, when I brought out into the light what I had been hiding in the dark, and my iniquity I did not hide or deny or redefine, you forgave my sin, renewed my spirit, restored my joy. He came alive. Blessed are those who quit pretending. Understand this, however, as I wrap this up. Mourning isn't easy. If you struggle with getting out here, what's really in here, you're not alone. Uh, indeed, I've, I, I've likened it, this thing of getting it out here, what's in here, especially if I've been hiding something for a long time, I liken it to the process of throwing up like I did on my dad. Because uh, I hate to throw up. And isn't it weird? I'm talking about this. It's disgusting. Um, but once you do puke, <laughs> you feel better. It's a lot like this. I'll come up with a different illustration next time. But while that works for me, that illustration, let me, let me clarify something. We live in a culture that throws up a lot. And so I'm not talking about Jerry Springer kind of blah, saying everything I think and kind of glorying in how disgusting it might be. I'm talking more about the kind of repentance and godly sorrow that brings it out here so I can be healed. One final question. Assuming the value of this is something we all kind of buy into, why is it still so hard to do? And why do we so seldom do it? One, I think that there, there can come a point, think about the Pharisees with this. I think we can get to the point where we literally can't get out here what's in here because we've invested so much in the image that we have, like a Pharisee, that the, that the cost would be just so high if you've kind of polished this thing your whole life, polishing the outside of the cup and of the bowl to come out and say it's not really all that good in here. So some people just, they, they can't do it anymore. Second, I think, is fear because all of us would be afraid of what people think. If they knew the truth about me, they wouldn't love me. So we hide. It's pretty natural. Sometimes it's despair. Because sometimes we wrongly believe that we're past forgiving, that we've gone too far or we've done it too often. So when the spirit prompts to get out here, what's going on in here, the source of resistance isn't hardness of heart. Uh, it's shame and despair. But you're beyond the pale. Another may be, and I think this is a big one, that maybe one time you did, 
You're in that small group or a group of trusted friends and uh, you were invited to get out here and you took, you took the risk and you told the truth and they were horrified. So instead of comfort that the beatitude promises, you were condemned and when that happened, you made a vow you didn't even know you made and the vow was this, I will never do that again. I was in Haiti some years ago and just preaching this to some pastors who had just gone through the hurricanes and I didn't think this was landing on them because they were kind of stone-faced. I asked the interpreter after, don't they get this? And they go, no, 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 the reason they're not demonstrably showing what they feel is they're afraid if they start to express the pain they have, they'll never be able to stop. So let me close with a question. What do you think would happen if in this room right now, in this school, people who are prompted by the Spirit of God to bring out here into the light what they're hiding in the dark, what do you think would happen? I know what ha would happen. Um, I know what would happen. The kingdom would come. In ways that maybe you've never seen or experienced, the kingdom of God would come. It's first things out of Jesus' mouth, how to access the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, take this word that is alive um, and, and is so amazing to me because it is the first thing you said. It was like the first clue of what kingdom life can actually be like and give us boldness and courage to respond and quit pretending with um, people that we trust and that your healing to all of those dark places would truly come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. I'm 15 seconds late. I'm still coming back next time. I don't care. Anyway, you're dismissed. I think you know how to get out of here. Get out of here.